take your Bibles now and, and let's open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, some of you may remember perhaps a story that was on the news in 2006. There was a United States Navy chaplain who was charged with disobeying an order from his commanding officer. This man was a lieutenant in the Navy, and he went through a court-martial. He was convicted by a military jury for praying a prayer while he was wearing his uniform. Now, this prayer was prayed at a public gathering at the White House, and the problem wasn't that he prayed a prayer. I mean, that was all right. The problem was that he prayed a sectarian prayer. He closed the prayer by praying in Jesus' name. Now, before he prayed the prayer, his commanding officer told him he was not to pray in Jesus' name, and this chaplain disobeyed that order. Now, as you can imagine, uh, that court-martial just just, uh, produced a firestorm of protest. There were evangelical pastors all across the nation that were insisting that President Bush issue an executive order saying that it was all right for a chaplain to pray in the name of Jesus at a public gathering. Now, my point in bringing this up this morning is here was a man who went to trial. He was convicted of being a Christian. Now, I'm sure that there are are many of you that have heard pastors use this line before, and I've even used it myself. If you were tried in a court of law for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, here in this passage in 1 Corinthians, we find out what a real Christian is like. And there's a lot of debate about this because there are people who don't have any idea, don't even have a clue what a Christian is, and they already have a preconceived notion of what they think Christians ought to do and what really makes a Christian. And we're going to talk about that today from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I have a rather long passage of Scripture to read today, and it may not be readily apparent to you as we read this this morning. You, you may not fully understand it as we read it, exactly what Paul is saying, Don't worry about it, because that's what I'm going to preach about today. I'm going to explain it to you. So let's stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read several verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we begin with verse number 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of the one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat asking no question for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake, 
For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse number 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We ask you, Lord, to open our minds, illumine our hearts to the the message today. Help us to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And Lord, may we really understand today what a true Christian is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Who is a real Christian or what is a real Christian? If I were to outline all of the things that make up the Christian life, I promise you I would not get done with this sermon today. All of my preaching, all of my preaching on Sunday mornings, on Sunday nights, on Wednesday nights, month after month, year after year, all of it is consumed with these questions. How do you become a Christian? How do Christians act? How do Christians think? What exactly is a Christian? Now, I believe that there are some very basic truths that we can find right here from the passage that we read this morning. Now, please understand, we're not going to exhaust the subject at all, but there are some things that Paul talked about here that I think will help us to understand more about what a Christian is. And we're going to start with this today. We're going to start where Paul starts. A true Christian does not practice idolatry. Now, Paul begins there. He says, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, you may think, well, if you're going to speak about being a Christian, why do you start with that? I mean, why do you talk about idolatry? Why wouldn't you start talking about uh, having faith in Jesus Christ, believing in him, and, and he's the Savior? Why don't you start there? Actually, folks, that is exactly where I am starting because to be a Christian, it is essential that you recognize the one true God. Now, that's where God himself began when he gave the Ten Commandments. You know it? In Exodus chapter 20, God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. So God starts right there with the recognition, there is only one true God. Now, the United States Navy and the United States government may demand that their officials be non-sectarian, but I want to tell you something today. God is a sectarian God. There is only one God. And you can't make God out to be anything that you want him to be. He has to be God as he's revealed in the Bible. He's the one God and the only one true God. The law of Moses was given right here, and it starts out with the recognition of one true God. Now we come to the New Testament. Paul tells us that the purpose of this law, the purpose of God giving the law of Moses, was to bring us to Jesus Christ, to recognize who he is. He said the law, Moses' law, is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And you know what it does first? It starts, first of all, by ruling out all other gods. Jesus was very explicit in his teachings and very exclusive. He said, no man comes to the Father but by him. 
He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to know God is to know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you don't know God. So Paul's teaching to the Corinthians is to let them know you can't mix up all of these idols that you have with the one true God. Now, when we talk about worshiping idols, we usually think of a statue. We think of something that's carved out of wood or out of stone or some other material. Maybe we think of a totem pole like the American Indians used to have, and and people would bow down to that. They would offer their sacrifices to that, and they would worship that idol. And if we looked at that criterion alone, we would say, well, there's not many of us in here today that are idol worshipers. I very seriously doubt that anybody in your backyard that you have an idol of stone, and, and every morning you go out there and you bow down and you worship that idol. But the truth of the matter is, you do not have to have a physical statue in order to be an idol worshiper. What is a true Christian? Well, let's put it this way, first of all. A true Christian does not worship anything other than God. Now, it's possible to be an idol worshiper without ever bowing down to a physical statue. John MacArthur gives a definition of idolatry. He says, idolatry is having any false god, any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. How do you know if you're guilty of idolatry? Well, you can't just say, well, I don't bow down to statues. You have to apply a test, and you need to find out, is there anything in your life that's more important to you than the Lord? You may remember a few weeks ago, we talked about a 4T test, how to find out what your God, who your God really is. Who is it that you, that you talk about the most? What is it that you think about the most? Where do you put your time? Where do you put your treasure What do you put your money into? So talk, think, time, treasure. There are four T's that are a T-test. And you figure out what those things are in your life, then you'll really find out who your God is. So you may say, you may sit there today and say, well, I worship the one true God. I, I worship Jesus Christ. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if there are things that you talk about more, and there are things that you think about more, things that you spend more time with, and and things that you put your treasure into, your money into, that tells you who your God really is. And a real Christian does not worship anything other than God. Some of you, your work is your God. Some of you, sports are your God. And let me stop there for just a minute. I know that there are some Christians that won't even bring their their kids to church on Sunday. They don't bring their kids to church on Wednesday nights because kids have soccer games. They have little league games. And the question is, who is your God? What are you teaching those kids? Who is it really your God? When anything becomes more important than the one true God, that is your God. Then secondly, a real Christian does not worship God in the wrong way. Now back in the first part of this chapter... Uh, Paul gave some examples of the uh, things that the Corinthians should watch out for. He said, now, you don't want to become like the children of Israel that were overthrown in the wilderness. In verse number 7, he said, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks, and he's referring there to that, that golden calf incident 
just after Israel left Egypt. You see, Moses was up there on Mount Sinai receiving all the laws of God, even the very same laws that told the children of Israel, you shall not worship idols, you will not have any other God before me. And while he was up on that mountain, the children of Israel said, well, Moses has been gone too long. We don't know what's happened to him. And so they said, let's make us a God. Let's make us something that we can worship. And so, you remember, they melted down their, their uh, uh, earrings and their, and their bracelets, and they brought all that to, to, to uh, Aaron. They said, make us a God. And Aaron made a golden calf for the children of Israel to worship. Now, the peculiar thing about this was, they worshipped this golden calf that they could see in the very same way that they worshipped Jehovah God that they could not see. And so what they were saying It's all right for us to make this image because it represents the real thing. Well, they were dead wrong about it because when Moses came down from the mountain, he destroyed the golden calf. He melted it back down, mixed it with water, and made the people drink it. You see, he was telling them exactly what Jesus says in the New Testament. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't see God. And God does not want you to make any representation of him. And that means anything that relates to your worship. You know, I, I, I will tell you today that if people start going over to this cross in the, in the baptistry, and they started bowing down before that, and they said, we're going to worship this cross, we would take that cross down in a heartbeat. You don't see a crucifix over there, because the Bible very clearly tells us that we are not to make an image of God. We're not to worship anything but the one true God. Now, I know that there are some of you that uh, um, worship other things, or, or I say that you worship them. I think in your mind maybe you don't think that you are. I believe that one of the reasons that we don't have a true physical picture of Jesus is because if we did, people would begin to worship that picture. Some of you may have uh, pictures of Jesus hanging on your wall. And you say, oh, well, I, I don't worship that picture. I I know that's not really Jesus. Let me ask you something. Would you take that picture down and poke holes in the eyes? Would you step on it? Would you tear it up? Most of you probably wouldn't do that. And you know why? Because that picture represents something to you. It represents Jesus. And whether you think of it or not, you have some kind of reverence for that picture. And you know what the Bible calls that? Sorry to tell you today, the Bible calls it idolatry. And it's worshiping God in the wrong way. You're awful quiet right now. <laughs> a few years ago, I was, I was in Rome, and I went to St. Peter's Basilica. And that, of course, is the most hallowed, revered place in Roman Catholicism. And in the church there, they have a statue of Peter. People will go up to this statue, and they rub the toe of that statue. And that toe is rubbed down where it's paper thin. I mean, it's almost gone. People come down, and they bow down to that. And, and they think that that represents something holy. That's holy to them. There are statues of Mary in that place and all kinds of other statues. People come down over there and they, they cross themselves in front of it. All of that is idolatry. Now, I could tell you that that's worshiping God in the wrong way, but in fact, it is not worshiping God at all because God calls that blasphemy. It's a direct violation of God's command. Now, let me go on here because I think we can tie that into Paul's next statement. Thirdly, a real Christian does not worship demons. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? What Christian? Where is there a Christian that worships demons? Look at verse 20 of our text. 
But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Now what Paul is saying there is that when you worship idols, you open yourself up to demons. Now there's a very interesting comparison that he makes here to the Lord's Supper. Later on in chapter 11, when we get in there, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper more and what that means. But Paul is showing us that when a Christian partakes of the Lord's Supper, he's associating himself with the body of Christ. When you drink the cup, you're identifying with Christ's blood. When you drink uh, or when you uh, partake of that bread, you are identifying yourself with Christ's body. And there's a lot of symbolism in that because what that's saying, this is what you believe about the death of Jesus Christ. Well, likewise, Paul says that when you worship God in the wrong way, you are identifying or you are participating with demons. I'm going to put this to you the only way that I know how, because it's the truth. Worshiping Mary, bowing down to her statue, that is a demonic practice. Venerating saints, praying to angels, those are demonic practices. If you have as many do, a particular place where you want to call it holy and you go to make a pilgrimage there in order to receive a blessing, that has satanic origin. There may be something that you really need to know about the devil today, and that is the devil is the arch-counterfeiter of God. He counterfeits all of God's supernatural wonders and he fools people by the things that he does. When the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th century declared the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception there was a, an appearance that some people said that, uh, of the Virgin Mary in, in uh, Lourdes, France. And it said that on 18 different occasions that the Virgin Mary appeared to people or appeared to a young girl there in Lourdes, France. And they said that there was a, a spring that sprung up there after the appearances and people go there in order to receive healing from that spring. Now, there are people today all over the world that make pilgrimages to go visit that place where supposedly the Virgin Mary appealed, and they go there appeared, and, and they go there to be healed. That is nothing but demonic power. The Scripture says that when the Antichrist comes, he'll perform all sorts of miracles. So great is his deception, the Bible says, that if it were possible, he would deceive even the elect of God. That's why you have people today who claim to see the Virgin Mary, and even claim to see her on grilled cheese sandwiches. When you mix things up with idol worship, the Bible says you open yourself up to demonic power. A real Christian does not practice idolatry. So don't get fooled into thinking that when the Pope does all of his hocus-pocus, that he does that because of real Christianity. It's a perversion. I realize that what I'm telling you right now, this is not popular for me to say, but the question is, Who is a real Christian? What's the evidence of being a real Christian? I mean, does it mean that that I have to bow down and cross myself in front of a statue of Mary? Does it mean that I have to kiss the ring of the Pope and now I'll be a real Christian? Absolutely not. And the reason why not is because a real Christian does not practice idolatry. You worship God in spirit and in truth. So Paul says you can't sit down at the table of the Lord and at the same time sit down at the table of demons. Now, let's go on here. Who is a real Christian? Well, a true Christian lives by the principle of unselfishness. A real Christian, a true Christian, is one who thinks of others first. 
Now, that, that may indeed be the hardest part of Christianity because we're living today in a me-first society. Everything is me-first. So we don't really think about the needs of others. You know, America is a wonderful country because of our First Amendment rights. Praise God because of First Amendment rights. But I think that we use our rights wrongly because there are, there are some people or, or don't realize what the Founding Fathers had in mind. I mean, they truly believed that they would go to their deaths defending the rights of other people. That's what they did. Now, today, that's exactly what we want, isn't it? We want somebody else to defend our rights. We want to have our rights, but we want somebody else to die for them. I'm going to make a political statement. Those people down in Berkeley a month or so ago that wanted to get rid of that Marine Corps recruiting office... They were happy to have somebody else die for their rights. They wanted somebody else to die so they'd have the right to protest. Now, the principle of Christianity is that Jesus died so that we would have the right to come into the presence of God. Jesus gave up his rights in order that we might have rights to come to God. Now, let's go back and let's put this in to what's going on at Corinth. There was a huge temple in Corinth, and, and the people there were worshiping the goddess Aphrodite. So they would go in there, and they would offer their sacrifices of meat, and the priests would take some of that meat. Well, the question was, when, when they're done with the sacrifice, what happens to all this leftover meat? What do you do with that? Well, the people would take it home, and they would eat it. Some of it would find its way into meat markets, and you could go there, and you could buy that meat that was there. Well, if a Christian bought that meat in the meat market... And, uh, or they were invited to someone's house to eat, could they eat meat that was offered to an idol? Well, Paul says that's okay. He says the idol's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a piece of stone. It doesn't have any power. And so whether you eat the meat or don't eat the meat, it makes no difference because you're not going to be helped by it. You're not going to be hurt by it. But in the passage, he's telling us here, what if someone comes to you and they say, this meat was offered to an idol? I mean, I mean, what if they came to you and they made a point to tell you it's offered to an idol? Then Paul says you shouldn't eat of it. Look at verse 27. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols. I mean, there's the point of it. Eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. Why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? So he says, if a person makes a point to tell you this, then it must mean that they have some question in their mind about it. It bothers them. And so Paul says, don't eat that because it could offend them. Now, here's the principle of unselfishness for a Christian. Don't do anything that causes someone to stumble. When you become a Christian, one of the things that you do is you step back and you realize, I do not want to do anything that would keep another person from coming to Christ. And so as a Christian, you begin to guard your life. There's some Christians who say, well, I'm saved. I have my salvation, so that means I can do anything that I want to do. And so you have Christians that curse. You have Christians that, that drink. I don't know, we might even have some, some members of Berean Baptist Church that they would, they would practice premarital sex or they get into adultery. And they say, well, it's my life. I can do whatever I want with it. Well, there's something wrong with that because it's not your life any longer. Paul says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
not, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, it's not your life any longer. This is Christ's life. And so when people uh, see you doing things that Christians ought not to do, what they do is they judge Christ by your life. And if what you do does not appear different from what they do, then they say, why do I need the Christ of life, life of Christ? What difference could it possibly make? And so you cause them to stumble. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about gray areas. Remember we talked about that? I mean, there are some things that the Bible just does not say. You cannot do this. Uh, it, it doesn't clearly tell you that. And so you have these gray areas, and you wonder, how do I know whether I can do this or not? This is one of the questions that you ask. Will this cause someone to stumble? And if it causes someone to stumble, you may take things that inherently, there's nothing wrong with them at all. And yet you don't do them because you don't want to offend that person. You are being unselfish. Then also, don't do anything that doesn't bring glory to God. Verse 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Paul there is talking about just simple things of life. He's not saying or talking about preaching sermons, and he's not talking about going somewhere as a missionary. You don't have to do all these big things that we call them in order to glorify God. Just the simple things of life that you do can glorify God. Coming to church today, standing up as we sing the songs, praying, all those things glorify God. But also this, when you watch every step carefully so that you don't offend someone, that also glorifies God. And don't think that this is insignificant. I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. How many of you have seen a millstone? Most of you have probably seen a millstone. If you've ever been to a grist mill, uh, they have a, a millstone there and they use water power to turn this millstone. And that millstone weighs several tons. And as that millstone goes around, it grinds the wheat into a very fine powder. Now, Jesus is using some hyperbole here. You could take a hundred-pound weight and tie it around somebody's neck and throw them in a farm pond, and that would be sufficient to drown them. But notice what he says here. He says, if you offend someone, it'd be better to take a five-ton weight and put it around your neck and throw you in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. That's how serious it is. This is serious stuff. And so he must be saying that a real Christian will be careful to curtail himself so he does not offend others. Now, I know that there are Christians that get proud of themselves and they say, well, you know, what you see is what you get. You listen to me. I'm going to tell you the straight up of it and I don't care if it offends you or not. They must be millstone Christians and they'd be a whole lot more used to Christ with a weight tied around their neck at the bottom of sea somewhere rather than opening their mouths all the time. It's a big deal when you offend people. Don't live for yourself. The fruit of the Christian life is that you think of others before you think of yourself. And that's the example of Christ. Now, number three, who is a real Christian? A real Christian doesn't practice idolatry. He lives by the principle of unselfishness. And then thirdly, a true Christian gives the proof in his life. Could you be convicted of being a Christian? If you went before a jury and, and all the evidence were presented, would the jury come back and would they say, this person, Your Honor, this person is a Christian? 
In a few minutes, I'm going to tell you how to become a Christian. I'm going to tell you what to do. But let's talk for a minute here about what if you think you are a Christian? Are you, are you not a Christian? How do you tell it? Well, there's four areas that can help you decide if you are or are not a Christian. The first one is, do you desire to seek the best for others? Now, hold on here. I'm not talking about seeking the best for you. I'm talking about, do you seek what's best for others? Every month, we have some kind of a food fellowship here at church. And next Sunday night, I believe it is, we have another food fellowship. Are you the kind of person that you have to be first in line? I mean, you've got to be sure that you get there to get what you want because you're afraid that if you wait to the end of the line, something's going to be gone that you wanted. Are you the kind of person that that wants to see others fed and well-fed before you're fed? I know exactly what's going to happen next Sunday night. Nobody's going to get in line now. Everybody's going to look and see who's that first guy that gets in line on Sunday night. But, I, you know, I remember, I remember my wife's uh, mother passed away about 12 years ago. She was a great lady. And one of her best characteristics was how unselfish that she was. She would rather starve herself to death than to see one of her kids or her grandkids go hungry. She would always prepare the food. Of course, she was the one that did that, but you know she was always last. She always made sure that everybody else had what they wanted before she would eat anything herself. A Christian does unselfish things for others. They show the proof. Now, the next proof is in verses 32 and 33. He says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews nor the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now, there's another thing for a Christian. A a true Christian, do you desire, do you want to see other people saved? I mean, do you really want to see other people come to know Christ? You know, I remember before I was saved, I I was saved at a very young age, but uh, I remember that before I was saved, there were several of us boys in one service that we were sitting on the front row of the church. I mean, we're sitting right here where my dad is preaching. One of those boys that I was sitting with was telling jokes. And they were good jokes, too. I mean, we we were kind of laughing there and carrying on. But then he told one joke that was a, I mean, it was a side splitter. I couldn't hold it in any longer. So I just burst out laughing out loud. I doubled over in the seat. I was laughing so hard. My dad stopped right in the middle of the message, and he said, you boys go back there and sit with your mothers. And after the service, I learned the virtues of being quiet in church. I learned that very well. (laughs) But what we were doing, we weren't concerned about anybody else. We, We weren't concerned because we were disturbing others that were around us. Now, I'm going to say something here right now, and let's see if this applies to you. You know, I have actually heard that we have some adults in our church that, Some people don't want to sit near them because they talk all the way through the service. They're always saying something. They're always disturbing, and people can't hear around there, so they don't want to sit in that place. I want to ask you something. As a Christian, when we get up to sing the invitation at the end of the sermon, are you the kind of person that says, praise God, it's finally over. We're getting out of church now. Or are you the kind of person that when you stand up to sing that song, that you are praying in your heart, Lord, please save somebody today? And maybe that's the reason more people aren't saved here, because there are no Christians that are praying that people would be saved. 
So are you, are you concerned about that? Do you really care? A real Christian does not want to see people die and go to hell. They want people to know exactly what they know about Jesus Christ. Here's a third thing. Who is a real Christian? Do you desire to follow Jesus' example? Now, in chapter 11, verse number 1, Paul says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Can you say that you follow the example of Jesus? Now, let me tell you something right up front here. You cannot become a Christian by trying to do the things that Jesus did. That's impossible. That's not how you become a Christian. And that's because a true believer in Jesus does not, or one who's not a true believer, does not know anything. He doesn't know anything about true commitment. He doesn't know about true care and concern for others. He doesn't know about that because those things come by personal faith in Jesus. But when you become a Christian, you can see how Jesus lived and you can begin to follow in his steps. The songwriter said, and I think Gary sang this last, last Sunday night, Sweetly, Lord, have we heard thee calling. Come, follow me. And we see where thy footprints falling lead us to thee. Footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus where'er they go. The good news for us is that we have a New Testament that tells us exactly the way that Jesus lived and we can learn to follow in his steps. We can read all about Jesus' life and we can begin to follow in his footsteps. Last Sunday evening, we showed some slides, uh, some pictures of our trip to Israel. And you may remember that we showed a slide of Bethsaida. And there's a walkway there that, that they've uncovered that, came, that goes all the way back to the first century. And, and they really believe that there's like a 99.9% chance that Jesus actually walked on that walkway. And so we could actually step out there on it, and, and we could walk in the place where Jesus walked. But I'm not talking about physically walking in the steps of Jesus. I'm talking about following Jesus' example in a spiritual way. And that's why we need this fourth proof that Paul gives us here. Do you desire to be an example to others? Paul said, be followers of me. He says, imitate me. The word followers in that verse comes from the very same word that we get mimic. He says, you can mimic me. Now, how many of you here today, you could raise your hand and you can say, if you want to know what a true Christian is, then you can just imitate me. You just do what I do, and then you'll know what a true Christian is. Do you know why that was so important for Paul? It's because they didn't have the New Testament. They couldn't read the New Testament and actually read about the life of Jesus and see what he did. So they had to have an example of how someone who believes in Jesus Christ has their life changed. And so they could look at Paul, and Paul earnestly desired to be the kind of person who could look at his life and say, this is the way that Jesus lived. And so is he being proud or is he boastful when he says, imitate me? We might be, but not Paul, because he was truthful about it. He was open. He was honest. He did everything that he could to be an example of Jesus because those people did not have it to read. Now, here's why it's so important for you as a Christian to be living proof of Jesus. And that's because you're the only Bible that some people will ever read. Most people don't pick up the Bible and read it. But what they will do, they'll look at you. They'll look and see what you do. They'll see how you live your life. And that's the example that they're going to follow. And the question is, are you leading them to Christ? Or are you leading them away from Christ? If they follow your footsteps, 
will they end up at Jesus? That's why it's so important. So they may not read John 3.16, but they will read your life. Now, I need to finish the message today, and you know that I have to come down to this. To be convicted of being a Christian, you can't practice idolatry. You must live by the principle of selfishness. You must give proof in your life. And then finally, a true Christian professes faith in Jesus. That is absolutely essential, isn't it? You couldn't call yourself a Christian unless you believe in Jesus. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's really as simple as ABC. Don't misunderstand, because even though it's simple, there is profound theology that is behind this. But you don't have to be a Bible scholar to be a Christian. When the Apostle Paul was asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't give him a long theological discourse. He said, simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So what are the ABCs of being a Christian? Well, A is ask. Call upon the name of the Lord. You come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I am an unworthy sinner. Lord, I'm, I'm not deserving of your mercy and your love and your grace. And so I come to you and I repent of my sin. So you ask. Secondly, B is believe. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, and you will be saved. Believe that he was crucified for you. Believe that he was buried for you. Believe that he arose from the dead for you. That is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that this was done for you and Christ did it to pay for your sins. And then the third thing that you have to do, see, is to confess. The Bible says, you believe it, confess it with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, and thou shalt be saved. What does it take to be a Christian? Understanding who Jesus is. Understanding that Jesus gave his life to save you from your sins. I'm going to ask you to do something right now that I I don't often do, but I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or do anything like that, but I want you to think in your own heart, am I saved? Do I really know Jesus as the Savior? Have I trusted him? And if you haven't trusted him, you need to do that right now. Trust him. And then we're going to sing in just a moment. And I'll be standing right here and you can come and tell me about it. Or if you don't understand it all, I mean, you can come and I'd be happy to tell you more about it. But you need to be saved. You need to become a Christian. And then I want to say to every Christian here, each one of you says, I am a Christian. I want you to think very hard. If you stood before a court of law, could that jury look at all the evidence and would they declare, Your Honor, we find this person guilty of being a Christian. Could you be convicted of being a Christian? Right now today, could you say to someone, follow me and my footprints will lead you to Jesus Christ? Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of everyone here. For those who don't know you as Savior, Lord, may they very clearly understand what Jesus came into this world to do He gave his life for sinners. And all we need to do is just trust you, believe in you, and you'll save us from our sins. Then, Lord, I pray for every Christian here that maybe they haven't been showing in their Christian lives that that they are truly believers. And if someone were to follow them, they would never end up at Christ. I ask you to speak to that Christian's heart. Change them right now. Cause them to, to dedicate themselves to you in such a way that they would be the example 
that others can follow. Bless in this invitation as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.